we'll give you some hair. It was a totally legit Broadway show. I've never thought that, ever. You are one of the people I wanted to shut up. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that wants what all men want. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I'm going upstairs to take off my hat. We don't have an upstairs. That's true. I mean, there's an upstairs, I guess, but like other people live yeah, there. Yeah, if you leave your hat there, you might not ever get it back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That but- would be a shame. It's such a pretty hat. <laughs> well, we don't want to cause awkwardness among our neighbors either. So. Or let them know that we live here. <laughs> right. If at all possible. Indeed. Welcome back, cousin. Yes. Guess what time it is. It's Downton time. It's time for a new season of Downton Abbey. We have done uh, instant takes yes. for every single episode this season. Uh, you can check those out at baldwoof.com. Uh, there are spoilers, of course, so don't listen ahead if you don't want those. Right. And hopefully we won't be repeating too many jokes. Hopefully not too much. We I don't, don't think so. We don't remember anything we said, and we were tipsy for most of them, so who knows? <laughs> we also don't remember anything that happened. No, I know. In like, It's been really bizarre. Right. Because we watched this episode, and we were like, what? Huh. Yeah. We forgot all of this. No, we did. Like, I saw Jimmy Kent in this episode, and I was like, boy, he's great. Why isn't he still on the show anymore? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Well, anyway. Well, no, that's that happens this episode. Well, I hope so. It. It's what... Shh. At- Don't give me that face. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> uh, at any rate, you can check those out, and if you would like to get in touch with us about the current season, you can email us or send a telegram to upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Facebook for upyoursdownstairs exclamation point. Right. Or on Twitter slash carrier pigeons. We're at five Maggie Smiths. That's at five, the number five Maggie Smiths. And first up, we have our cousin of the week. That's right. Cousin Anne Louise writes, Hi, Tom and Kelly, and perhaps Aaron. I'm sure you couldn't resist an email with this subject line. The subject line was Dune and Maggots, <laughs> and she was correct. <laughs> I'm not a Downton watcher, but I do greatly enjoy your podcasts on other titles. I recently listened to your casts on Lawrence of Arabia and Battleship Potemkin, which I definitely kept reading as Battleship Pokemon, <laughs> and I thought I'd chime in. First, as much as I enjoy Dune, it's a ripoff twice over. Not only does it rob from Lawrence, but it even stole the idea of the spice. The idea of a desert planet with harsh rules of survival that produces an immortality-inducing substance in conjunction with oversized beasts was not an invention of Herbert's, but of a sadly obscure author named Cordwainer Smith. Oh. In real life, he was Paul Linnebarger, and he literally wrote the book on psychological warfare called Psychological Warfare. <laughs> in his free time, though, he wrote amazing and bizarre science fiction stories, including futuristic retellings of Joan of Arc and the life of the poet Rambeau, only with animal people in spaceships. Trust me, it's amazing. Anyway, he also did write a novel called Norstrilia, short for Old North Australia. Norstrilia is a desert planet where the immortal citizens harvest an age-defying substance that only grows on their planet and makes them both effectively immortal and incredibly rich. Yet they live in enforced harsh conditions. Sound familiar? Seriously, if you like bizarre reading, I definitely suggest it. Second, Kelly, I had heard about the idea of aging meat until maggots are mold before. I did a bit of research and found this article. It's from Cafe Mom, so I'm not sure how credible it is. But combined with my vague previous understanding, I think the idea is that the maggots are simply an indicator that the meat is done tenderizing and they are cut off before they can reach beneath the surface. They can also be killed with vinegar or brine and rinsed off that way, which would presumably 
presumably further flavor the meat. Obviously, these methods are no longer used since we have modern hygiene standards. Hope this was helpful and thanks for the cast and Louise. Well, thank you very much. You know how much I love talking about hanging things till high. You certainly do. And I will share that article with everyone so we can further scrutinize <laughs> this bizarre yet compelling practice. Whether you want it to be shared with you or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, this Cordwainer Smith sounds great. Yeah, Incidentally, for sure. I will definitely be checking that out at some point during the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you very much, Cousin Anne Louise. You are Cousin of the Week. Congratulations. The spice must flow, <laughs> as must our telegrams. Right. Fear is the mind killer, etc. Mm-hmm. Which I think brings us to our recap. Right. So uh, let's get going. All right. Well, we start off with Lady Edith on a bike. Has every single one of these seasons started with a bike? I'm not sure. I know season one does. Right. And I'm fairly certain season two does. Mm -hmm. Season three, I feel like I've blocked out of my memory. Right. And like for some reason, season four seems like it just ended. Even though it's been over a year since it ended. No. Well, it's been just yeah. under a year. Look, it's been a whole situation. Yeah, it's been a long time. Involving we've all, maths. We've all grown a lot since then. Yes, we have. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, so maybe... Maybe not ever... Baron Fellows, but anyway. Well, you know, he... <laughs> <laughs> There's no need to bring Baron Fellows into this. Not yet. <laughs> right. Not now. Besides, I blame Neem. I know. Our new villain, Gareth Neem. Which may have brought up an instant take, so people may not be aware, but Neem oh, yeah. is the new villain. We're now angry more so at Gareth Neem, the other producer of Downton Abbey, than we are at Julian Fellows. Although we remain mad <laughs> at Baron Fellows. We just feel like we've been letting Neem slide. Yeah, we've just been acting like he doesn't have to do with a bunch of this stuff that we don't like. Right. And uh, so we're trying to share the wealth a little bit with our anger. Speaking of things that people don't like, uh, the purpose of this bike ride by Edith is to arrive at the Pigman's farm where Marigold is ruining Mrs. Pigman's laundry. <laughs> and Edith has a sad... She does. She's like, oh, I hate seeing my baby so happy. Yeah. <laughs> God. Back at Downton, uh, everyone's having tea in the library where Lord Grantham is bitching about the Labour government, the new Labour government, and Prime Minister MacDonald. Mm-hmm. He makes a Fu Manchu joke, and well, he I'm says, like... He says that it wouldn't bother him if the Prime Minister was the son of Fu Manchu, which... I think it would. I think it would bother. Like, it's yeah. like, was, is he a British citizen? Is he from Hong Kong? Like, how did he get right. there? Yeah. I don't think he'd be happy with anything other than a, you know, Tory right. uh, approved <laughs> prime minister. Uh, other people in the room are optimistic about it. Uh, also, ISIS sighting. Yes. She's right there in the mix. She's in the mix. Right. Uh, she's keeping involved. She's really, yeah, she's getting in there. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure she has opinions. Oh, sure. About the new labor government. Rose is there and she's saying that she's helping out down at the school. And Branson says he ought to lend his support more. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, Branson. <laughs> Put your dick away and I hate you. <laughs> Uh, no, honestly, watching the wind that shakes the barley right. has completely made me hate Branson. Yeah. Like, from the beginning, it's been, okay, it's a combo of that and everything Lucy Lethbridge said. Right. Like, but anyway, yeah. real mad at Branson. Sure. Lord Grantham uh, says he wants to bounce on out of the library before the babies are brought in to briefly socialize with their blood relatives. <laughs> yes. And uh, we learn that Sibby refers to Lord Grantham as Donk. Yes. Uh, rather than, you know, grandpapa or something more dignified. Right. Uh, because My she, Lord. yeah, she wants, 
She once played pin the tail on the donkey, so she calls him donk, which is actually really cute. That is really cute. Because that's exactly what fucking kids do. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. For all we know, that's the only time she's ever seen Lord Grantham. Yeah, that's a really good point. So the babies are brought in. George is wearing a sailor suit, and I'm like, does he only have the one outfit? Like, this is getting a little egregious. (laughs) You know, child acting regulations in Britain. Yeah. They only get one outfit. Sibby does indeed call Lord Grantham donk. And waka everybody waka. laughs. <laughs> Yay, jokes. Right. Uh, this brings us rather early mm-hmm. to the first of our recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our favorite labor librarian, Tom. <laughs> Take it away, All right. Tom. I, I will. Great. Uh, so we all look forward to it. I was just um this is just a little brief update on the political situation at the time that we're we're here, uh with the new Ramsey McDonald led Labour government. Uh, which is actually it was very brief. It only ran from January through November, his time in power. And it was a weird setup. There's actually later on somebody says downstairs that obviously most people must support him, otherwise he wouldn't be prime minister. But that's not entirely the case. Uh, what happened was the Tories won a couple of years earlier, a big election. But then Bonner Law, who had been in charge, died. And the new guy who took over, Stanley Baldwin, changed a major policy. He began supporting tariffs, which Bonner Law had not. So he felt that he needed to call a new election. To the old it. guy was named Bonner Law. Yes, he was. God damn it. I Look, it's Britain. I can't all help right. it. Just a bit on the nose. It is. No. And listen, it's all I can do to not call him Bonner Law, which is what I always thought it was. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, General Haig hated him, by the way, as I recall. Didn't General Haig hate most people? Yeah, all the, well, that's true. Everybody Thus, in government. The ir- well, I guess the Haig is not... Is it named after General Haig? What? The Haig. Oh, no, it's not. Okay, It's good. spelled differently. Oh, yeah. great. Oh, Haig. Yeah. Got it. Yes. Well, <laughs> we've all learned something today. I suppose that's true. Boner law. <laughs> So yeah, so he he called an election to try to ratify his point of view, but the conservatives lost seats and to the point where they had less seats than the Liberal Party and the Labor Party combined. However, they were still the most – they had more seats than any other party in the government. It was uh, conservatives first, Labor second, liberals third. Uh, liberals making a strong showing because they'd finally gotten the Asquith wing and the Lloyd George wing to like work together for once. So the Tories didn't feel like they could govern because their major policy thing had just been rejected. So uh, Stanley Baldwin told the king that he should have Ramsey MacDonald, the labor guy, form a government because labor had more seats than liberals. So it was a weird situation. They were the minority, but they were still running the government. Uh, MacDonald, ex- when he met the king to accept the charge of forming a government, he wore full court dress, much to everybody's amusement or dismay, depending on their position in the political spectrum. Uh, so it was a pretty moderate government by labor standards, uh, A, because it was partly a coalition with the liberals, they had some ministers, and B, being in the minority, they couldn't really do that much anyway. Uh, but they did, you know, they passed this housing act, they raised unemployment benefits and pensions, uh, reduced taxes on a lot of common foodstuffs, thus moving closer to the free breakfast table, which was a common rallying cry on the left, meaning that the, uh, you know, basic necessities of life, such as food, should not be taxed. Uh, they they moved in that direction, uh, but the, their sort of their biggest thing was in foreign policy, which Ramsay McDonald was key, and he made himself foreign secretary as well as prime minister, because what was going on was that Germany was not paying the reparations from World War One because they did not have a functioning economy at that point, and so France had gone in and like occupied parts of Germany and all this sort of thing. 
And under this Labour government, England was able to talk France into allowing the reparations to be delayed until Germany, you know, had an economy going to be able to pay them. So despite being moderates, they were brought down by communist panic, essentially. And and specifically, it was the Campbell case. So this guy, J.R. Campbell, who was a communist, published an open letter in his newspaper and said, among other things, Comrades, you never joined the army or navy because you were in love with warfare or because you were attracted to the glamour of the uniform. In nine cases out of ten, you were compelled to join the services after a long fight against poverty and misery caused by prolonged unemployment. The Communist Party calls upon you to begin the task of not only organizing passive resistance when war is declared or when an industrial dispute involves you, but to definitely and categorically let it be known that neither in the class war nor a military war will you turn your guns on your fellow workers, but instead will line up with your fellow workers in an attack upon the exploiters and the capitalists and will use your arms on the side of your own class. Refuse to shoot down your fellow workers. Refuse to fight for profits. Turn your weapons on your oppressors. That's pretty clear. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, yeah. That's very, very straightforward. Yeah, little room for doubt there. So he was, uh, they initiated a prosecution against him under the 1797 incitement to mutiny act, but pressure from within the party led that prosecution to be withdrawn, and that made everybody very angry. Uh, the Tories demanded an inquiry into why the charges had been withdrawn, and when MacDonald refused, there was a vote of no confidence, and the government fell. Man, communism, guys. Right. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And then there was another incident in the lead up to the following election, uh, the Zinoviev letter, when a conservative paper published this letter that was supposedly sent by uh, the Soviet government to the British Communist Party that basically said, like, hey, you should, like, have a revolution there in Britain. It's great. (laughs) Um, However, the letter was a forgery. Um, still unclear. The, the best consensus these days is that it was some, some white Russians, some monarchist Russians that forged it just to like stir up some shit. I don't know what they thought they were getting out of it. But the Labour Party blamed that forged letter, which they were saying at the time was forged, but nobody believed them. And in fact, after the election, the conservatives had their own investigation and they were like, nope, definitely genuine. Um, so the Labour Party blamed that on their loss or blame their loss on that, but generally historians agreed, no, they were just going to lose anyway, that that the letter didn't really have anything to do with it, but it caused the Labour Party to, to not feel any need to, you know, be become less radical in this sort of thing, because they're like, oh, it was just foul play, it wasn't our fault, blah, 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 if it wasn't for that one letter. Yeah, well, you know, uh, perception. Yeah. Kind of important. They really needed a better PR strategy. Yeah. But really, the main effect that it had was to get the other two parties to realize that this sort of thing was like a winning tactic for them. So as soon as the Tories were back in office, they rejected a pending trade agreement with the Soviets and all this sort of thing. And this is at a time when the Soviet Union was just starting to be willing to open up to the West. And Stalin was in saying, this: let's build socialism here and not worry about worldwide revolution for the time and, and all this sort of thing. But at that very moment, Britain veered into this hardline anti-communist uh, stance. Mm-hmm. So there, there was never really, you know, there was a chance for some, you know, rapprochement there, but it never happened. Uh, so yeah, that was the brief, exciting life of the first McDonald government. 
and I was just going to say the one last thing that they accomplished was to be basically competent for 11 months. And so it really helped destroy the Liberal Party because the people on the right of the Liberal Party were afraid of communism and so went over to the Tories. And the people on the left in the Liberal Party who had maybe just been nervous that Labour was too radical and would be too crazy, they became confident that the Labour Party could govern responsibly and so they came into the Labour camp. Interesting. And the Liberals were never really much of a factor after that. Good to know. Yep. All right. Well, thank you. That was Tom Repeat's history. Yes, it was. We'll be back next week with more. <laughs> so down in the kitchen, uh, Daisy is complaining about the fact that they no longer have a kitchen maid. Unclear who are all these other apparently maids in the kitchen. Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, Well, they might be um, tweenies. Yeah. Which do a lot of things in a lot of different places. That's true. Um. But I guess, you know, because anyway, you know, they may be scullery maids, like it's unclear. But uh, if you recall, what's her name? Ivy. Yeah. Went off with Mac H. Yes. To make his, uh, oh God, what was it called? Yeah, it was uh, uh, the... Kedgery. Yeah. She went off to America to make Kedgery for Mac H and that American accent guy. <laughs> right. God, we hated him. We sure did. He was the worst. Yeah. Well, maybe she'll poison him. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Hughes says that, oh, this neighboring estate is down to, like, no servants at all or whatever because the servants prefer the hours better at factory and shop jobs. Um, also, isn't the work not so hard? Like, you don't have to get up and, like, polish the front steps with a stone? Yeah. Like, I would definitely be into that. Right. It's like, okay, the first thing you gotta do every morning is get up and rub a stone with another stone (laughs) until it looks good. Yeah. Like, I quit. No, I mean, that's like, you know, that's like in the Phantom Toll Booth. Where they make them like carry one grain of sand at a time <laughs> from this pot. You've never read the Phantom Toll Booth. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm We're sorry. getting a divorce. I'll read it sometime. You will not. I, I'm not. Anyway. You've been saying that for years. Yeah. And it still could happen. I better buy it. You probably just, better. I better buy it and just leave it lying around the apartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just envision it then being under like a box that's propped <laughs> up with a stick. <laughs> like in the medicine cabinet. <laughs> it's also apparently uh, Lord and Lady Grantham's 34th wedding anniversary coming up. Uh, and Daisy says that that is such a long time and wonders what things will be like in 1958. Uh, if she and Mrs. Patmore will be in service. Uh, Mrs. Patmore will not be alive in 1958. She certainly won't. Yeah. She's not too worried about what things will be like then. Uh, Mrs. Patmore points out that Daisy will be fine because she owns that farm. Thank you, Mrs. Patmore. Yes. Uh, Daisy thinks that she is too dumb to run a farm. And Mrs. Patmore is like, you're probably right. Do up these salmon patties. Yeah, you know, that's fair. Yeah. Back at Pig Farm... Edith is dandling Marigold while Mrs. Pigman attempts to make awkward conversation with her about the Pigman being named chief of the estate fire brigade. And I'm like, does this guy ever sleep? He's the Pigman. He's got Yew Tree Farm. He's lying to his wife. Right. Now he's head of the fire brigade. He's swamped. <laughs> uh, oh, the other piglets are there. Oh, yeah, that's right. The other right. children. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Pigman says she's almost forgotten Marigold isn't their baby. And then Mrs. Pigman chatters about how she has no idea who Marigold's parents are. And then is like, peace out, rich weirdo, yeah. Edith. 
<laughs> and then Edith leaves and she's just super awkward. And I'm like, you are the worst at having a secret wedlock baby. Yeah, she's terrible at it. No, I do like that. She's like, oh, look at the time. We may or may not own a clock, but seriously, look at the time. Yeah, and get out of here. Uh, so then after Edith is gone, Mrs. Pigman says to Pigman that Edith has a big crush on him. And that's why she's around. Pigman could be like, oh, you know how these rich dolts are. But he's just like, meh. <laughs> right. Big man. He just makes that face he makes yeah. all the time. Uh, Edith wheels her bike away from the farm and cries. Of course she uh, does. Spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. Listen, it's been a while <laughs> since we did a podcast this long. It's true. Uh, anyway, Edith cries a lot in this episode. She does. She's mostly crying. Yeah, almost exclusively. Yes. Dowager Countess and Isabel are walking along and uh, fighting about Murty. <gasps> Murty! Yes. Apparently, Murdy has asked the Dowager to throw another luncheon because he is still hot for Isabel. Ow, ow! Yeah. And he wants a casual excuse to happen to run into each other at the luncheon party he makes the Dowager set up. No, and I like that, you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if Murdy was like, hey, maybe like, don't tell her. <laughs> but even like, Isabel's like, uh, hose before bros, dude. I'm totally <laughs> telling her what you're asking me. Isabel says that Murdy wants something that she cannot give. And the Dowager Countess says that she, he only wants what all men want. And Isabel is like, wah, 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 wah. and uh, the Dowager says that she was referring to companionship. <laughs> it's kind of a weak burn. It, well, I mean, like it works well, but I'm like, that's, uh, you know, yeah. come on, Dowager Countess. You weren't referring to companionship. Murdy wants to get his dick wet. He does. Back at the house, Thomas encounters Jimmy Kent. Thomas still firmly entrenched in the friend zone. Yeah. And Jimmy's telling him about Lady Ann Struther's very heated advances uh, toward him, Jimmy Kent. <laughs> and uh, Carson blusters in and tells them to stop having smutty conversations. And I can't agree more. As we all know, the only people who are allowed to have smutty conversation are the Prince of Wales and his various mistresses. That's right. And his various mistresses' friends. Yes. <laughs> Edith comes into the drawing room, hopes that she's not late. She isn't. Uh, why was this dialogue necessary? Yeah, like maybe if she had been yeah, late. Yeah, if she was late, that might have been interesting. You're like, yeah, we've all been waiting for you, you dumb bitch. <laughs> why are you always down with that pig man? <laughs> Lord Grantham says that the village council is coming over and they want Carson to attend. It's a meeting to discuss some sort of veterans memorial for the recently concluded Great War. McGee has just had a call from Gilly. Gilly! <laughs> he uh, wants to come visit on the 16th. And Lord Grantham says, well, I can't see any possible problem there. <laughs> and she's like, uh, that's our anniversary? And he's like, oh, well. <laughs> he really he does not care that it's their anniversary. Yeah, the more the gillier. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Mary, <laughs> Mary smizes that she doesn't care if he comes over. Lord Grantham makes sure that McGee is fine with Gilly crashing there, and she says that she wants whatever he wants, and what he wants is for Gilly to marry Mary. Who will marry Mary to? The marrying! <laughs> Carson announces dinner. Down in the servants' hall, Bates wonders if Gilly's visit means that Mary has ditched Charles Blake. She, he says that Mr. Blake can go whistle, which, whistling's fun enough. What's yeah, wrong with that? Yeah, he like he'd be a good whistler. <laughs> Julian Ovenden is a professional singer. <laughs> Anna likes the sound of Mary being called Viscountess Gilliam, uh, which to me sounds like an exceptionally bad supervillain. Yeah. But Doesn't the Bates... hold a candle to the Duchess. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Bateses discuss the challenge of raising another man's son and are completely boring. Yep. Thomas skulks up behind Baxter, who is apparently still a thing. Right. And says that he wants her to tell him what she knows about the Bateses. Yes. And then Molesley butts in and says that he found what he was looking for in York. Everybody's like, hey, Molesley, did anybody talk to you? Also, Molesley, no one noticed that you left. Yeah. Shut your mole hole. (laughs) (laughs) Thirdly, what does Baxter know about the Bateses? Uh, that they were whispering together or whatever. I don't know. Because is, is this something about that train ticket? It's something about the train ticket. She, like, I don't know. She over, I remember, yeah, like she overheard or saw some furtive conversation. Gah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm really glad that this continues to be a plot point. Well, I'm sure they can't stretch it out much longer. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Uh, Carson and Mrs. Hughes do the old Sorkin walk. Uh, he tells her that she he needs coffee and food at 11 because he's going to be in this meeting with the village people. You'd think he'd be more comfortable with homosexuality. <laughs> well, you know, he uh, he likes their music, Tom, not their <laughs> lifestyle choices. It's just, in- a, it's just a song about having friends. <laughs> in the servants' hall, Jimmy Kent is extolling the virtues of the labor prime minister, McDonald, and Carson is like, before the war, we never would have had a labor prime minister. Mrs. Hughes disagrees, and she likes that he has a working-class perspective. Mrs. Patmore says that Jimmy Kent is now a revolutionary, and Thomas gets all butthurt on his behalf. Yeah. Uh, this is a weird dinner. <laughs> it is. And also, if Jimmy Kent is a revolutionary, they had better make sure he doesn't try to elope with Civvy. Right. Yeah. yeah. They better uh, They better have Civvy watch her diaper. <laughs> her red diaper. A comrade. <laughs> Yeah, they're lucky she's only calling Lord Grantham Donk. Yeah, and not uh, Trotsky. Capitalist running dog. Is Trotsky a thing yet? I don't think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Potemkin? You saw Frida. Did I? <laughs> I did. Yes, you did. I was there. <laughs> uh, I watched it before I knew you. No, you're correct. Actually. You introduced me to it. Yeah, because I'm amazing. Yeah, I do find Mrs. Patmore's politics... I find her politics more interesting because she's conservative, not because she thinks everything's so great like Carson does, but just because she doesn't want anything. To, she doesn't want to think about changing things. She wants no, everything she to stay want the a same. Refrigerator. Yeah, refrigerators are great. Yeah, which I think is the most common form of conservatism. Yeah, is people just being like, ah, life is hard enough. Don't change. No, anything. they've already learned the operating system. They don't want it to, you know, shuffle under their feet. Right. In their bedroom, McGee makes small talk with Lord Grantham about the war memorial. Uh, Lord Grantham has some imposter syndrome that, oh, they're going to ask me to chair and it shouldn't be me because I didn't even fight in the war and blah, blah, blah. And my life is so hard. <sighs> Can you imagine how insufferable he's going to be in World War II? Oh, my God. Like, he'll be too old to fight, but right. he'll still be like, hey, when did you do my bit? <laughs> these blackout curtains. <laughs> I need to plug this computer in uh, okay. before we get there because it's going out of battery. Presumably, this is the following day. Uh, we see the village people approaching the castle. One of them is an amputee, presumably an actual war veteran. Right. And, and the cowboy and the police officer and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> 
so uh, at the meeting inside, uh, the head village lady announces that they want a bit of earth from Lord Grantham, mm-hmm. and they want to have Carson as the chairman of the memorial committee. Record scratch? Yeah, and Carson's like, what, what, what? <laughs> so Carson says that he's honored, but he will have to think about it. And then uh, the head village lady is really persnickety one might even say bitchy yeah. about her tea. Because it's like, okay, so she comes in here to ask Mr. Carson to be the head of this committee. And then it's like, bitch, you best put the milk in first. Yeah. And, and Mr. Carson is like, I know how to make tea, for God's sake. Yeah, that's like the one thing I definitely know. Right. In a hallway somewhere, Jimmy Kent has gotten another saucy letter from Lady Anne Struther. He apparently keeps sending her signed valentines as jokes but now she wants to fuck she definitely does and uh thomas gets a little bit self-righteous uh about gay marriage essentially (laughs) (laughs) no because like jimmy's like oh you know god what does he say something about wanting to settle down he'll settle down eventually eventually, and then thomas is like well no all of us have that option and look you have to hand it to rob collier james yes because he gives a stellar line reading on something that literally nobody would have said (laughs) yeah before like 1969 yeah uh it's like you can settle down you get a sham wife have a sham marriage settle down or uh be a confirmed bachelor with some other dude like that's what you get yeah this is what you get. <laughs> We're not saying it's fair. Lord Grantham stops in at the Dower House. He smooches the Dowager and tells her about the war memorial. And they're both like, why would they want Carson instead of Lord Grantham? Because uh, Lord Grantham's a giant dick in a tuxedo. Well, and before the war, or in his grandfather's day, or his, well, his father's day and grandfather. Anyway, it used to be different. Um he then changes the subject to Murty having a crush on Isabel, and Lord Grantham horrifies the Dowager Countess by pointing out that that would make Isabel quite the big lady of the county if she Indeed. was, uh, you know, what would she, what would she be? She would be Lady Merton. Right. Yes. Yes. Listen, trust me. Yeah, no, no, no. I've been, yeah, I've been looking <laughs> up uh, character names for this 12 Days of Downton thing for about a week now. Yeah. Lord Grantham also randomly wanders over to her mantle and picks something up off it and reads it. I was like, that's not your mantle, dude. Like, hey. You never uh, snoop around other people's mantles while they're watching? <laughs> Generally not. It's a but lot hey. of fun. You should join my mantle snooping society. <laughs> I guess that's why I'm not an earl. Sniffing around your business since last month. It's a pretty new society. <laughs> it's understandable. There's fewer mantles than there used to be. Unless... I know. I had to start it before we went home for Christmas. That's where all the mantles are. That's true. In Ohio. Some good mantle territory. <laughs> in the kitchen, Carson gives Daisy a parcel that's arrived by mail, and uh, she runs off and says it's a big secret. Carson wonders why it is a secret. And Mrs. Patmore says it would be sad if she had no secrets at her age. Which is what at this point? Like 27? Like hopefully uh, it's a 401k or like prescription strength deodorant. <laughs> like <laughs> she's old now, dude. Right. Like she is, uh. She's like, yeah, 35. She's like, already you- been married. <laughs> right. <laughs> why do you all keep acting like the first three seasons of this show never happened? Uh, unclear. <laughs> Well, I accidentally threw out all my scripts, so I've just been going by memory. You know, they published them. (laughs) Yes, and I keep buying them and then accidentally throwing them out again. (laughs) Mrs. Hughes asks if Carson has decided about accepting the chairmanship of the committee, and he he doesn't like being put ahead of his lordship, and neither does Lord Grantham. 
Uh, Carson then decides that this would be a great opportunity to complain about the labor government again. Mrs. Hughes wants to know what he's so afraid of, and Carson gives a little season trailer monologue about about the shifting of his ground on his feet, and then that Hughes points out that things are going to change anyway, and he says, yes, the one constant in life is flux. And Mrs. Hughes is like, dude, that's gross. You know what he should have sung? What? I feel the earth uh, move uh, <laughs> under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. It's from Tapestry, the songs of Carol <laughs> King. It was a totally legit Broadway show. I believe you. I don't want people to think I'm going to stop singing, Tom. Well, I was surprised you got past that bit of Earth reference earlier. Uh, listen, I severely thought about it. <laughs> I, I could, like, I could but it sense was too it. late. I mean, I could bring it back. No, that's fine. I could do it right now. Well, let me explain first that if people are wondering why Mrs. Hughes said that it sounded gross just for him to be saying that it's a state of flux, that's because flux is, and even at this point, obsolete word for diarrhea. So, just throwing that out there. Now we can sing diarrhea. <laughs> diarrhea. <laughs> that is not from any Broadway musical that I know of yet. <laughs> right. I assume at some point there's going to be like a jukebox musical. <laughs> that's all like these like playground <laughs> song. You know, the lead character will be Miss Lucy. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. You know, Miss Lucy had a steamboat. <laughs> the steamboat had a bell. <laughs> Miss Lucy went to heaven. The steamboat went to hello. Operator, <laughs> let me that Mary Mac. Uh, Jingle bells, Batman smells. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, that's uh, we just need some funding at this yeah, point. Yeah, we really shouldn't have said all that out loud. No, I know this is all public domain. We need to move fast. <laughs> Expect our Kickstarter invitations <laughs> in the morning, cousins. <laughs> Mrs. H intercepts Edith, and she has found a copy of a German primer that was Mr. Gregson's. Uh, Edith has several emotions and a very ugly coat in this scene. <laughs> yes. Uh, then She's like, this is where he learned all those curse words. He yelled at those Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, Rose and Branson come in, and they collect Edith, and they head on down to the school. Lord Grantham doesn't want Tom visiting the school due to his perceived jiggery-pokery with the homely liberal last season. But he won't explain the jiggery-pokery to McGee. He doesn't want her to know that there's this sort of scandal going on, just that he's generally upset with Tom and Cranky. Uh, She knew the Cranky part. (laughs) I would imagine that's been, that and Flux have been the constants (laughs) of their marriage. Mary comes in and wants to know how the meeting went. They say that Carson was asked to be the chair. And she says, oh, how nice. I'm going upstairs to take off my hat. Like, great. Yeah, sure. Don't Shouldn't you be able to just give the hat to somebody downstairs right, you can... and be like, take this to the hattery? <laughs> you swine. She needs Anna to do it. She can't lift her hands above her head. <laughs> oh, like John McCain? <laughs> yeah. Was she also shot down and kept in the Hanoi Hilton? So that's why she's so cold and emotionless. <laughs> Down at the school, Rose is handing out awards and uh, some cute babies applaud. Yes. The headmaster thanks Rose for deigning to be there. And then the kids all file out British style. Yeah. You know how it is. I don't. <laughs> well, you didn't read enough British books then. I clearly did not. Yeah. At least not set in schools. Yeah. I saw that If movie. That's true. With Malcolm McDowell. It was a different sort of And that situation. guy who was like, Run! <laughs> Run in the corridor! 
Which was great. It was great. Yes. Also, there was that weird psychosexual dance. <laughs> Check it out, kids. Not actual no, kids. No. No children. <laughs> Be an adult to watch this movie, please. So Edith congratulates Pigman on Pigman Jr. winning a prize in geography. <laughs> um, oh, Pigman. <laughs> Yeah, and he says that uh, he would never have been able to win a prize in geography unless it was a prize in the geography of pigs, which would have done well at. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been anatomy? <laughs> they call it pig geography. <laughs> Pigography. <laughs> That's right. Look, he knows their ways. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he also says that they need to talk about her ghoulishly haunting his household. <laughs> <laughs> but not right there. And so Ida says to meet tomorrow at 11 at the Stone Barn. Which we alternately, I thought she said bun, stone yes. bun. And I thought she said the stone van. <laughs> Both of which are hilarious images. <laughs> right. She's like, well, there was this baker, see? And uh, we wanted to erect a memorial. Uh, so we built this stone bun. There was... <laughs> There was a metal shortage during the war, so we said, what if we made this van out of stone? Didn't get very far. <laughs> the homely liberal then approaches Branson and correctly determines that she's given Branson a black mark for forcing him to take her to the house. Yeah. And then Edith comes and says that they better leave before the gong. And then the homely liberal. Right. All right, guys, listen up to our faces. Yeah. You know. That we are generally speaking favorable to socialists yes. and people who don't want like the aristocracy to succeed. Right. However, <laughs> there is a way to like express that that it like is she like, oh my god. Right. It's just so rude. Cause she's, she's like, oh, living in the gong. It must be like being in some sort of religious order. And like Rose gives her a pity giggle. Yeah. But like Branson and Edith are just like, boom, we're out. Yeah. They're like, uh, listen, bitch. Right. Like, don't knock the gong until the gong knocks you. Yeah. No, and again, this is this is the representative of liberal values that Neem has put before us. And look, I also okay. think Julian uh, yeah, Fellows oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. had a big hand in this. He no. was like, what if A, she was real ugly? <laughs> and B, what if she was a harridan? Yeah, that's what liberals are always doing, right? Complaining, being yeah. mean, <laughs> in- uncivil. Ugh. That's what I hear in the email chains I get. <laughs> my aol account <laughs> baron j at aol.com england is great at aol.com <laughs> peerage boy at aol.com at the dower house sprat is serving cake to everybody except dr clarkson uh, and there's only the two people in the room <laughs> right not counting Spratt. So, so it's not like anybody wasn't going to notice. Yeah. So uh, Maggie Smith forces him to give Clarkson some cake. This is another example of what Lucy Lethbridge pointed out, and we'd sort of been aware of, but just to hear her say it, that it's always the the servants are always the ones who are snobs on this show, yes. never the wealthy people, yes. which is dumb. <laughs> So, yeah, Clarkson's like, I guess that guy hates me. And the Dowager Countess says, even Spratt cannot always live for pleasure. Which is a sweet burn, but on whom? Right. Like, who is that directed at? Right. I was not like, clear. You what... know, you invited Dr. Clarkson over, yeah. Dowager. Like, he didn't just you know, stroll by and be like, oh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> that weird thing he does. <laughs> 
And Spratt doesn't get to live for pleasure at all. He's a butler. Ugh. So she tries to get Dr. Clarkson all hot to trot regarding Murtabelle. Uh, and Isamert. <laughs> I know we want to say Isamert. Should I stop trying to make Isamert happen? <sighs> you know, it was a noble effort. All right, Murtabelle it is. I mean, you're the one that typed up these notes. You are the one who's reading them. <laughs> so I think the onus is on you. Fair enough. So Maggie Smith invites Dr. Clarkson to come watch the sparks fly at this luncheon that she's having with both Murtabelle and Lady Shackleton. <gasps> I love Lady Shackleton. Mm-hmm. She's my favorite ancillary uh, toff. <laughs> yes. That evening, Lord Grantham is having a nightcap in the library, and Mary comes in to say that McGee's gone to bed, and she probably will, too. And he asks her to sit down, and they discuss whether it's cool that the school board and the war memorial don't want him. Uh, she says that she wants him, which I don't even think is true. Well, And that they and Tom make a pretty good team. She brings up crop rotation and grain sales, uh, which is what now passes as a tender father-daughter moment on this show. Uh, you know, that's not bad. They are co-workers. <laughs> Thomas corners Baxter on the stairs and says that he's tired of waiting and she's tired of being bullied. I'm tired of these scenes. Yeah, it's super boring. Anyway, this is just the same thing they keep saying. Yeah. Baxter, it's like, I feel like Baxter, you could just like put your hand through her. Like she's so... I think you could edit this entire episode and cut Baxter out of it and like not notice a damn thing. Yeah. Maybe she's the woman in black too. Edith says goodnight to Madge. Madge! Yes! Madge is there, and uh, then she looks stricken because she is holding the book of a dead guy. <laughs> then in uh, in their bedroom, Lord Grantham passes on to McGee the gossip of Murdabelle, and McGee says that the Dowager Countess would not want to see Isabel elevated to the level of big deal lady in the county with a living husband. Right. Which is something I hadn't really thought about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Dowager is at this point relatively impotent. I mean, she can only wield as much power as uh, Lord Grantham will allow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and Lord Grantham's like, oh, no, no, no. She'll, she'd will she love it. Blah, blah, blah. And McGee is like, I remember when we all used to hate your mother. <laughs> Question. This is only tangentially related. So I was reading this thing on the New York Times that was like a uh, interactive timeline of mm-hmm. Downton Abbey. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. We linked to it. If you haven't seen it, go to our Twitter and Facebook and find it. Uh, but uh, there was a, like a quote there from Mary who says, you know, uh, oh, it was when they were going to sell the house. And mm-hmm. she says, you know, I'm going to be Countess of Grantham one day. In my book, the Countess of Grantham lives at Downton Abbey. So now that Matthew is dead... Right. Will she ever actually get to be Countess of Grantham? I guess not really, because she'll be like Dowager or Yeah, like immediately. Right. So that just seems like a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Mrs. Patmore finds Daisy looking at arithmetic books. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Right. This is her big secret. Uh, She says she was rubbish at numbers in school. I was hoping it was porn. (laughs) Farm porn. Sadly, it's math porn. Ew. Yeah, it's just not. It's just math. No. Yeah, sorry. I don't care how many times, you know, X goes into 69. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so Daisy says she was rubbish at numbers in school, and Mrs. Patmore says, oh, All the best people were rubbish at numbers in school, which is phenomenal, because all my best friends are similarly bad at math <laughs> yeah. as I am. Yeah. 
Daisy's worried that she's too dumb to run a farm. You are! <laughs> she says she wants to be able to take care of herself. She thinks that Mass will make her a grown-up. And she gets mad and she runs off. Which seems like a great way. That was actually my whole math strategy. <laughs> was getting mad and running off. Yeah. And I had this note, and I don't remember exactly where it was, but the music cues are weird in this episode. They are, and the editing is really odd. Yeah. Like, it's, it just is all a little bit off yeah. in ways we don't understand. Molesley is in front of a mirror rubbing what looks like caviar mixed with tar on his hair. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And that brings us to our second recurring segment of this episode, Fashion Backwards, where our very own hairstyle heroine, Kelly, will tell us something. <laughs> that I will, Tom. That I <laughs> a little, will. A little out of practice on these Uh That's very true. <laughs> yes. In fact, I'm talking about Edwardian hair care and baldness cures. Because what Mosley seems to be darkening his hair mm-hmm. in this scene, but he's also going bald. Right. Uh, so I don't know if he thinks he's making that look better or what the deal is there. Yeah. I mean, I sort of is like this, that spray on stuff. Yeah. Except they didn't have sprays. Right. So at the time, there was no cure for baldness. As there is not now. Right. No matter what anybody (laughs) tries to tell you, that is not what's going on. Um, In fact, though, the first written record of a successful hair transplant was actually published in 1822 in Würzburg, Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, There was a medical student named Diefenbach, and he he and his surgeon mentor, Professor Dom Unger, (laughs) uh, would... uh, just play around with uh, skin grafts, basically, sure. that had uh, a high density of hair to see if they could uh, successfully do that. So it worked okay. Um, and basically, it was primarily to treat both androgenetic alopecia and traumatic alopecia mm-hmm. uh, in the late 19th century. Now, that clearly did not take off as much as you would think. Yeah. Uh, possibly because these two people were crazy. <laughs> but in the 19th century... We'll give you some hair. The, <laughs> the 19th century was like the uh, the heyday of uh, the medicine men, the snake oil men, right. the senior Pirellis. Try Pirellis miracle elixir. This is great. Yeah. Uh, cousins, <laughs> if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, you may already know that one of my New Year's resolutions is to watch more musicals. <laughs> so this is certainly going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> it's going to get better. <laughs> uh, I might improve my vocal technique. <laughs> you smart ass. <laughs> uh, yeah. So those guys, you know, they were around. They would be like, hey, uh, here's this uh, tonic, man. Yeah. Put it in your hair. Make it happen. And Mosley did. Yes. Uh, and obviously that, you know, that continues even until today. Like that's what Rogaine is. I don't care what the FDA says. <laughs> there actually was an article, uh, that appeared in the Illustrated London News commemorating the death of King Edward VII by this guy only identified as Mr. Edwards. All right. Uh, who basically was hawking his Harleen hair drill, which he said that he had been patriotically distributing across the UK so that the people of the Anglo-Saxon race no longer remain behind the Latin races in this respect. This respect being having hair. Uh, so he was, uh, promoting himself as a royal hairdresser. And actually this article that I found in the Daily Mail, uh, was published in the lead up to uh, Prince William's wedding to Kate Middleton. <laughs> so they're like, oh, 
why don't we send up a bottle? Because Wills is going bald. <laughs> because that's the voice of the Daily Mail in my head. Um, well, slash a trained seal. So according to Mr. Edwards, this concoction would need only two minutes a day to apply and result in a new sense of vitality with thick and luxuriant hair growth. Ooh. Seriously doubt uh, that is true. <laughs> so uh, you could do that. I also found this entire manual on barbering uh, in the uh, Edwardian era, which is hilarious. Uh, the I haven't read the whole thing, even though I kind of want to. Um, but it says, in considering the idea of becoming a barber, the first question that presents itself is, what are the requirements necessary in order to ensure success after laboring at this work? Will my nervous system permit handling of the razor? Will the nature of work I have done in the past bar me from this profession? <laughs> Oh, well, my history of grave robbing probably isn't going to go over. Are my mental propensities such that they will allow me to wait upon others with patience and with solicitude for their welfare? The question is often asked by those preparing to take up the work. Will I make a barber? There is but one answer to this, and that is, have you patience and energy to practice diligently at the work until you have thoroughly mastered it, providing you have at your disposal the opportunity for constant practice and the assistance of skillful instructors? So, like, go to beauty college, man. Like, calm down. <laughs> right. That's, yeah, no, that's very uh, intense. Yeah, it is. But anyway, but the the book has, you know, instructions on ladies' hairdressing, your furniture, your tools, your combs, uh, how to do a Marcel wave, dyeing, bleaching, scalp massage, formulas and price list, hair work, manicuring, facial massage, uh, electrolysis, which I really need to look into because, like, what? <laughs> and uh, chiropody, which I can only think is, like, chiropractic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, potentially. But, well, you know. Um, there's no dentistry in here, though. Hmm. So I'm guessing that by uh, the Edwardian age, people had heard enough about Sweeney Todd <laughs> that they were like, I'm going to not let this barber look at A my common teeth. question we get is, can I make my customers into pies? <laughs> Sadly, the days of barber cannibalism are long past <laughs> us now. Uh, so it wasn't just male baldness that was an issue at this time, though. Um, in addition to, you know, natural thinning of the hair, uh, women often went bald in Edwardian times because they were curling their hair with overheated tongs. Uh, they were perming their hair with really harsh chemicals. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times their hair dyes and even some of like the regular, you know, things they would put in their hair cause their hair to fall out or burn chemically. Goodness. And, uh, you know, there was no, um, there was no labeling at the time. There was right. no oversight of what people were putting into their hair. Uh, they were putting radium into hair products to produce a glow-in-the-dark effect. Well, sure. Uh, so good for you. Yeah. And this is also a period of time where you're seeing a lot of uh, switches or uh, rats, as they are sometimes called. But so you would um, collect your hair. Mm. Uh, what do they call those? I can't remember. Uh, they have one in uh, Little House on the Prairie. Books. Oh, okay. But anyway... Um, so you pull the hair out of your hairbrush and you collect it and collect it and then you can make it into, you know, a a fake braid or you can just use it to pad out your hair mm-hmm. to give you more volume. It doesn't look to me like most of the women on Downton Abbey do this. I mean, obviously now that shorter hair is coming into style and things are definitely right. different um, than they were before the war. <laughs> uh, 
and we also like we come into the Edwardian period so late in Downton Abbey yeah. that you don't really have the portrait hats and these really elaborate hairstyles. But it was right. really vital at the time to be able to like really get a lot of uh you know volume s- yeah. or like yeah. And um <clears throat> sorry. Uh and hair was washed pretty sporadically, but it was brushed a lot. Mm. Um that was just sort of the the practice of the time. And uh then in terms of dyeing the hair for women, you could get red hair with a henna paste, uh, and then you could bleach your hair with dioxygen and ammonia, uh, which sounds stinky. Yes. And not that current day hair was, dyes yeah, like... smell great because they don't. And then if you wanted to darken your hair, you used sulfate of iron. And that's what Mosley does to his hair, essentially, uh, okay. is darken it. So I'm assuming whatever he has has some sulfate of iron in it. Makes sense. And then if you wanted to prevent gray hair, uh, I don't think this works. But they said that your hair went gray because it was dry. Ah. So in order to prevent it, you would uh, put a mixture of oil, rum, and I'm not sure if that's rum or bay rum. Okay. Because bay rum is like, right. you know, it's basically an astringent mm-hmm. that was also used as a deodorant and a hair tonic. Yeah. Anyway, oil, rum, glycerin, oil of bergamot. And then they would put brilliantine on the hair for a sheen. Um. So, yeah. So that's some fun stuff you could put into your <laughs> hair. <laughs> and then the other really interesting thing that I came across is the practices of roughing and the practices of singeing. Roughing, we know today as ratting or teasing. Oh, okay. Um, so that was obviously really popular in the 1960s for beehives and stuff like that. But yeah. that was another way if you, you know, didn't have a ton of switches mm-hmm. laid in, uh, you could just, you know, backcomb the hair. So you yeah. get that volume. And then singeing, you would burn the ends of your hair to keep them from splitting. Oh. Uh, which is why in a lot of photographs of Edwardian period women, their hair looks kind of frizzy. Hmm. Uh, it's really weird because I mean, if you do that, you're really damaging your hair. Right. Like, I mean, I understand not wanting split ends, but I mean, some of that crazy stuff they were putting in their hair actually would have helped with split, you know, the, yeah, yeah. basically the, the treatment for grays right, was yeah. a deep conditioner. So it's really weird to me that they would set it on fire. <laughs> uh, I mean, they didn't set it on fire. They just used extra hot tongs <laughs> right. to like pull it away. Um, yeah. So that is, uh, Edwardian hair. I do like the idea that they just set them on fire and had somebody standing by with a bucket. <laughs> okay. Give it two seconds. <laughs> She's gorgeous. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're welcome, Tom. I'll be here all season <laughs> and for the rest of this episode. <laughs> That's good. Rose walks into Tom's office uh, and asks why he never asks Miss Bunting up to the house. Uh, and he's like, uh, I don't know. It's not because she forced her way in there before and we got caught. And Rose says that Tom must have his own life, but he says that Lord Grantham wouldn't like it. This scene is boring. Yeah. Uh, Carson makes sure with Lord Grantham that he's allowed to be on the committee. McGee is delighted for him and Lord Grantham continues to be a dick about it. <laughs> Edith walks with Pigman in the stone barn. Uh, apparently, Mrs. Pigman doesn't want her coming around anymore. And Pigman reveals that he knows that Edith is Marigold's mother. Which, yeah, idiot. Yeah. Like, quit coming around every day. He sees the same thing happen with pigs all the time <laughs> when they give up their piglet. <laughs> and he says they need to find a way to live the truth without telling the truth. I just don't like where any of this is going. No, like... do I. Well, again, he's lying to his wife. Yeah. Like... Stop it. You can't... Like, this scheme only works if your wife is in on it. Yeah. Like, 
she doesn't seem like a mean person. No, what's the problem? Like, I don't get it. Yeah. It's just really freaking weird. Yeah. Uh, Carson informs Mrs. Hughes that he has accepted the position with the committee and uh, that things are changing, which I thought we already knew. We did. Bates wonders how it would have been to inherit kids from Anna, and they have a conversation about... Yeah. Borderline gross. Yeah, having babies and producing them and whatnot, uh, while Baxter is kind of eavesdropping like, on them. Like, why is she always listening to them? She has nothing else to do. <laughs> She's a ghost. Her spirit restlessly wanders this house, listening to boring conversations. <laughs> Be more boring. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> so Thomas comes in to threaten her again, and Molesley interrupts. So whatever. Jimmy Kent tells Thomas that he called Lady Anne Struther, and she is still a DTF. Thomas says that it's pathetic for a lady to be pining over a footman, and Jimmy Kent says that it shows good faith or good taste. I'm going to disagree with you, Jimmy Kent. <laughs> this is really pathetic. It's pretty pathetic, yeah. I mean, you're cute and all. But. Yeah, he is cute and all, but it's like, come on, there isn't some, att- there may not actually be an attractive peer that she could have a relationship <laughs> with. We haven't seen any evidence yeah. of that, no. Down at the Dower House, Lady Shackleton arrives, and uh, they have some fun bitching about their daughter-in-laws. Old people gossip. Ha ha ha. Dowager Countess asks how Lady Shackleton feels about Murty. They both hated Mrs. Murty, mm-hmm. uh, which is good to know. And the Dowager Countess drops the invite for the luncheon. Lady Shackleton accepts. Uh, and then I don't remember why, but the Dowager Countess says that Lady Shackleton sounds like Mrs. Bennett. Yes. And we really enjoyed this reference to a 200-year-old novel. <laughs> we did. 200-year-old at the time. Yeah. Mostly wants to know what is up with Baxter and the Bateses, because he doesn't have a plot line either. Mostly tells Baxter that she needs to go to McGee with this problem, and she's like, I can't, for mysterious reasons. Uh, she notices new- his new hair, and not in a favorable way. We hate Mosley. That we do. McGee meets Lord Grantham uh, on the way into dinner and says that Lady Anstruther has rung up and invited herself to tea on the day of their anniversary. Right. And they don't actually know Lady Anstruther. She was married to a jock. A jock or a jack? I think it was I think, jock. I think it was. Jock Anstruther. And like they didn't know her very well. Right. But they're like, okay, whatevs. Well, we, we have no good reason to say no. Uh, they get into the drawing room and Marion Rose propose that they have a little anniversary party for Lord Grantham and McGee. And then Lord Grantham says they should invite a bunch of young people yes. and liven things up. Uh, so Branson comes in right as Rose starts scheming on how to invite the homely liberal. Yeah. Because she's incorrigible. Great. Mrs. Hughes, Carson, and Mrs. Patmore are down having a discussion about whether Daisy needs this mathematical skill. Mrs. Hughes is in favor of it. The others are against it. Daisy pops in just to tell everybody that she's dumb. (laughs) I just thought I'd tell you I'm dumb. Good night. Uh, McGee wants to know who's coming to the party. This is her and Mary and Rose going up the stairs after dinner. Mm -hmm. She wonders whether she should ask Lady Anstruther to the dinner. Uh, And then they, the two, Rose and Mary, tell... McGee that they're going to invite the homely liberal and they say she's perfectly respectable so drama yeah because this is a case of irony yes it is I also like that McGee at some point referred to them inviting some of their pals yes which was great Anna's helping Mary undress including taking off her it's like it's like a cross between a scarf and a necklace it's like a choker but that's like a scarf length right like, it's like a bolo scarf. It's really weird. Yeah. But, but it's uh, cool. Yeah. Like, it looks really awesome. Yeah, it looks good. 
she asks Mary if she is glad that Gilly is coming by, and Mary says that she hasn't made up her mind. And uh, she also laments the fact that she can't bang anyone before she gets married, implying that perhaps one Matthew Crawley was not the best at that sort of thing. Uh, I suspect he wasn't. He wasn't very good at anything. That's true. If you recall. Yeah. It's been a while. He wasn't even good at being paralyzed. (laughs) (laughs) A bell Uh, rings downstairs. Jimmy Kent has a note from Lady Anstruther that says, see you soon. Carson mentions that Gilly may or may not have a valet, so everybody starts talking about Mr. Green, like, shut the fuck up, everyone! Yeah. Don't let Neem know <laughs> that that was a thing! We were hoping he'll forget. Uh, Bates agrees to valet for Gilly, much to the dismay of Mr. Molesley, who was like, I could have been a valet! Uh, Carson also upset about Molesley's hair. Yeah. Which doesn't even yeah, look Yeah, I was just gonna bad. throw that out right now. I don't know why everybody's so upset about it. I don't know it's it. just, like, the quality of the episode that we're watching, but it just, it looks just darker. It's yeah. bad. Yeah. It's not monstrous. It's weird. Uh, Rose is at the school watching the kids do calisthenics or whatever British children do. It uh, might be cricket. I thought uh, I saw some bats. It could but... be. They just carry cricket bats around wherever. It's like, don't forget your English. No. Homely Liberal comes in and Rose says that she wanted to see her after receiving her letter, which the Homely Liberal had written to say that she wouldn't come to dinner because she doesn't want to be part of a prank. She wants to instigate the prank. Yes. She does not want to be the subject. But... Rose says that McGee had asked them to invite some younger guests, uh, and it is, yes, Branson does not in fact know, uh, it will be a surprise for him, but Rose says it'll be a lovely surprise for him, and the homely liberal agrees to come. Rose is painfully naive for a woman who's had an affair with a married man already. She is. Or have we forgotten about that also? Apparently. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't totally bug me, because she is very sweet. She is. But it's like, you know, she, is an adult person. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Mosley is bitching to Baxter that Bates gets to valet for Gilly. They go into the boot room <laughs> where Baxter says that it's very ironic that Bates would be valeting for Gilly. Thomas happens to be there lurking and asks why it's ironic. And then Baxter leaves and Mosley gets down to buffing shoes like nobody's business. Yeah. It's the luncheon. The famous luncheon. <laughs> Clarkson comes in, uh, Murdy expresses interest in the clinic, and Lady Shackleton arrives and immediately jumps in to monopolize Murdy, and they all go in to lunch. Gilly arrives at Downton, and Mary offers him some coffee. Mary congratulates Carson once again on his chairmanship. Carson continues to fret about being on the committee. Yeah. Gilly asks about the famous pigs. Yeah, you know, Porky. Babe. Uh, Olivia, the pig. Uh, Amanda and Oliver. Spider pig. <laughs> you know all the famous pigs right that pig from black mirror uh, oh uh wilbur oh yeah yeah <laughs> that pig from black mirror <laughs> gross yes anyway branson says that they're earning their keep and more at you know uh day rates i'm sure well yeah royalties and all that sort of thing tom invites gilly to go shoot some rabbits for mrs patmore and mary says she'll also come along and uh carson ducks in downstairs to tell mrs hughes that he's running down to the post office great so after lunch at the dowagers Clarkson asks if Murdy will be heading north for the grouse, and Murdy says, oh, I'm more likely to be found with a book than a 12-bore these days. Spratt again snubs Clarkson, who dismisses Murdy's interest in medicine, says that he is a hobbyist. The dowager tells Spratt again to serve Clarkson and quit being a snob, and Shackleton invites Murdy to visit her at her new small digs, where she has finally been able to get warm. So Lady Shackleton is doing her part. 
in all this. Yeah, which is not entirely, like, I guess, is the point to, like, make Isabel jealous? I think that's the point. I mean, I think, I don't, you know, I think... Or is the point also to drive a wedge? I, I think the point... I think the point is just to stir things up and see what happens. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. You know, some dowagers just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> that's, that's right. We see Carson walking in town next to a nurse, uh, I guess, toward the post office. Uh, presumably. Baxter enters the boot room where the shoes she needs are missing. <gasps> Thomas has them. He wants to know about Bates and Gilly. He corners her and closes the door. Uh, and it's like, is Thomas about to get violent? No, he's just going to tell McGee Baxter's story. And you know what, man? I miss O'Brien. Yeah. She never would have put up with this she shit. She wouldn't have. Also, why was Thomas holding those shoes? Right? That had like, nothing to do with what no, he was doing. Like, he, it's not like he was threatening to hold them for ransom. He could have come in while the shoes were still <laughs> in there. Like, he didn't right. need to... Yeah. Have we mentioned yet that we hate this plot line? <laughs> it's like the murder prison of this season. Yeah. So Gilly, Branson, and Mary are walking along, shooting some rabbits, and Gilly asks if Branson's going to America. He's like, maybe? I'm going to America! <laughs> Mary says that she understands Lord Grantham better now, and uh, she wants to improve how they sell their grain, and she also wants to live in the moment, which is probably not a good idea for proper grain se- selling, but... <laughs> Uh, Gilly also wants to live in the moment. He only dreads the future if Mary isn't with him. And Mary's like, oh. Uh, she says that she does love him in her cold, unfeeling way. I'm not sure she knows what love is. She doesn't. Okay, great. <laughs> well, she says it like, you know that this is clearly, uh, this, yeah. Um, Where I should have a heart. <laughs> God left a note that says, I owe you one heart. <laughs> I have no intention of collecting. So Mary won't accept his proposal, but she does want to make sure that she'll be happy uh, before and accepting a proposal. Gilly says that it'll be a risk regardless. He also says that he no longer has a valet and longs for a simpler life. Boo! <laughs> Lady Anne Struther, the famous Lady Anne Struther, has finally arrived. Not that cute. The hoe of the West End. I don't know where she's from. <laughs> anyway, so she's arrived, and she says her car's broken down. Oh, but she doesn't want Tom to look at it. Right. Uh, her her chauffeur will take care of it, and she says she'll stay down in the pub, and then McGee insists that she stay. Let her stay at the pub. Right? Come yeah. on, guys. Anyway. It's very nice. Lord Grantham then tells Mosley that he looks very Latin. <laughs> uh, oh, right. And then he's like, oh, are you Italian or Spanish so or Lord- Irish? So Lord Grantham's theory is that in the last few days, Mosley has suddenly become Italian. It's very weird. <laughs> like, what? McGee tells Jimmy Kent that Lady Anne Struther is staying over and you could knock him down with a feather, <laughs> even though she's been clearly telegraphing her intentions for quite some time. Yeah. Well, he's cute, but he's not the smartest footman in delivery. He is not. That would also not be Mosley. <laughs> right. They're down... Any intelligence on the foot, the footmenery. <laughs> Mosley encourages Baxter to tell McGee her story before Thomas can. Baxter thanks Mosley and climbs the stairs. Thomas wants to know why Lady Anne Struther is there. Jimmy Kent says he doesn't know. Carson asks if Jimmy Kent knew about her visit, and it's awkward time. Yeah. Um, 
So McGee is perplexed by Baxter's arrival, but she says that she has a bad secret that Thomas knows about, uh, and Baxter reveals that she once worked for Mrs. Benton in London and stole a bunch of jewels from her after six months of employment. She tried to make it look like a burglary, but did not do a good job of it. Gee, Baxter didn't do a good job? Right. Shocked. Yeah. She just, like, fluttered her hands at the window and was like, burglary. No, she just, like, she just sat in a corner and looked forlorn. <laughs> Uh, she was unable to give the stolen things back and went to prison for three years. McGee thanks her and Baxter leaves, partly because Lord Grantham comes in at this point. And Lord Grantham is like, boy, you know, Tom looked at that car and he didn't find anything wrong with it. Boy, what a mysterious circumstance this is. You'd think these people would have wised up after that dead Turk. <laughs> Uh, Bates is valeting for Gilly, and Gilly says he never replaced Green. Then he goes down, and Bates stands there and broods. Brooder's gonna brood. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. I so don't care. Right. Baxter returns downstairs, and Molesley tries to verify that she held nothing back. Molesley says that whether or not she's allowed to stay, at least she won't be living a lie. And Carson's like, uh, shut up. Let's go. Jimmy Kent meets Lady Anstruther in the hall, and she wants to know why he ignored her letters. Carson intercepts them and tells Jimmy Kent to make with the drawing room, Lady Anstruther wise. Yes. Uh, so he shows Lady Anstruther in, and she lets her hand linger on him for a moment. I'm like, she dude. She needs to tone it down. Yeah. Don't touch the footman. Yeah. Like, basic politeness. It's inscribed in Latin above the house <laughs> of every nobleman. That's right. The Grantham family motto. <laughs> Don't touch the footman. <laughs> The very fragile. Lady Anstruther keeps apologizing and being annoying. Apparently, there are no longer cocktails before dinner at Downton because... Carson said he didn't want them anymore. He tried it once and exploded or something. It's <laughs> unclear. Lady Anstruther makes a hilarious joke about having an older husband means you get to be released from marriage sooner, which is... Distasteful. Uh, yeah. Uh, since Mary's a young widow. Oh, right. Do you realize how many widows and widowers there are in this house? Neem! <laughs> well, it's okay. Lady Anne Struther is at least a sucky rich person. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the homely liberal arrives, and Lord Grantham flips out. I mean, you know, not like in a crazy way, but he's not at all pleased. Yeah, he's quite put out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rose introduces the homely liberal to her friend Kitty, which uh, goes about how you might expect. Kitty hilariously dumb oh yeah like she's real dumb Uh uh-huh uh and branson wonders why that this has been sprung on him uh which i think is fair yeah i really think everybody's behaved very shittily toward branson yeah even though i hate him yeah but he's allowed to choose for himself what he wants to do or i guess he isn't the dowager countess and isabel arrive and the dowager countess is already exhausted from her luncheon (laughs) luncheon And Isabel is excited by the homely liberal's presence, and then they all discuss the new prime minister. The Dowager Countess and Lord Grantham complain about the homely liberal. Edith thinks they're being snobbish, which is rich. Right. Well, it is, and that's the thing about it, because she's like, oh, no, we're being realistic, which is more than you people can manage. That's the thing. They are clearly being snobbish, but then the homely liberal is so terrible that they end up seeming to be proved right. Yeah. Ah. Anna confirms to Jimmy Kent and Thomas that there is nothing wrong with the car. Jimmy Kent continues to be like, I, I don't know why Lady Anstruther is here. I can't imagine. Thomas is like, bitch, please. He is. She wants that dick. <laughs> At dinner, Lord Grantham says that marriage is a lottery and he has won a bumper prize and he proposes a toast to his Cora, which is actually kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. 
The Dowager Countess also wonders what's going on with Molesley's hair. Ha ha ha, Molesley's hair. Yes. Don't care. Yep. Isabel congratulates Carson on his chairmanship. Uh, and I'm like, what happened to not talking to the servants at the table? Yeah. This never would have gone down before the war. <laughs> Kitty asks Rose if the homely liberal... Kitty asks Rose if the homely liberal is terribly clever. Rose says yes. And Kitty thinks she thought the homely liberal thought she was terribly stupid. <laughs> and then there's this other young overbitey guy who confirms that Kitty is in fact very stupid. <laughs> and they all And they laugh. shouldn't hold it against the homely liberal for pointing this out. <laughs> Uh, Carson spots Lady Anstruther fondling Jimmy Kent, and basically everyone in the room has ginned to her sexual game. Yes. She's awful at this. Yeah. Well, and it's she like- She would have done better if she had showed up <laughs> and kidnapped his ass. Yeah, because, like, Mary says something about, oh, especially if the footman has such a pretty face or something like uh-huh. that. And I'm like, uh, Lady Anstruther was not even looking at his face. Uh-uh. No. She was looking at his little Jimmy Kent. <laughs> So the headline for this dinner is Middle Class Person Ruins Everything. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the homely liberal very tactfully says the war memorials are not a good idea. And you know what? I'm pretty anti-war. Right. But you'll never catch me at a dinner party in mixed company being like, you know what? A war memorial? Bad move, Amber. Yeah. That's, yeah. Just ridiculous. I just wrote, stop talking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gilly and Mary both think it's a good idea, but the homely liberal thinks that it's a waste of money and a reminder of death. Lord Grantham says that she is talking nonsense and that her opinions aren't welcome in his house. Branson decides to try to defend her and asks if the war, in fact, achieved anything at all. Which Which it didn't. Right. But, uh, maybe don't discuss this at dinner. Right. Lord Grantham says that they're wrong. Uh, The homely liberal is like, oh, by the way, it's too bad they didn't want you on that committee. Which is like... Did you know about that right and b you're a guest yeah in his, in his house. house yeah that's oh come my on God. yeah what is the matter with you yeah just because you're homely you don't have to be rude <coughs> so carson chimes in to tell lord grantham that in fact the committee did want him as a patron and so he did not go to the post office right he went to talk to the village people to make <laughs> this happen right uh, the Dowager Countess suggests that maybe everyone just shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, Isabel says that she admires young people and their principles. And the Dowager's like, you are one of the people I wanted to shut up. <laughs> Starting with you. And the Dowager says the principles are like prayers. Noble, of course, but awkward at a party. <laughs> Carson catches Jimmy Kent downstairs and says he saw Lady Anne Struther pass him a note. Thomas swoops in and says that Jimmy Kent already threw it away. And uh, Carson's annoyed, as well he should be, because Lady Anstruther's really acting out of turn. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes gathers that Carson has passed on the good news to Lord Grantham, uh, but he won't tell him that he told the village people he would not serve on the committee if Lord Grantham wasn't involved. Right. And I'd also like to say a great use of Thomas would be as this kind of like, you know, non-commissioned officer, like middle manager downstairs, where he's like part kind of management, but kind of, you know, not like in this scene where he like intervenes between mm-hmm. Jimmy Kent and Carson, you know, he's like, there should be more disputes with Carson, like on any staff about yeah. jobs, well, about especially because Thomas is the under butler. He should be interacting more with Carson. Right. Right. Also, maybe he should be not point pointlessly like, badgering baxter yeah exactly like they should be having just workplace problems not mysterious soap opera problems (laughs) oh well 
Isabel admits to Mary that she gets along well with Murdy, but that the Dowager Countess had other plans for him at luncheon. So I think, you know, maybe there is some jealousy working yeah. out here. Uh, the Dowager Countess is ghosted because she is awesome and also very tired. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the homely liberal says that she wants to meet the staff before she leaves, which is, of course, she does. And uh, Mary tells Edith to quit being such a terminal bummer. Uh, she's not going to. No. Homely liberal insists on thanking the servants for the meal and is super awkward as she's saying goodnight to Lord Grantham and McGee. Yeah. And, well, McGee <sighs> says that, oh, they'd be delighted. I'm like, would they? Aren't they no, busy living I mean, their lives down there? They don't give a crap about her. Yeah. Carson asks Lord Grantham if everything is all right. Lord Grantham says that it is not, and to keep Molesley in the kitchen until his hair stops turning blue. Is that a Latin thing? <laughs> as far as Lord Grantham is aware? First he's turned Italian. I assume his hair will be turning blue next. He's be putting tomatoes and everything. <laughs> in the kitchen, the homely liberal asks what Mrs. Patmore and Daisy are doing. They say that they're setting up breakfast trays for Lady Mary and McChee. And then the homely liberal is super annoying. And she's like, oh, well, why aren't you doing them for Lady Edith and Lady Rose? And they're like, because uh, unmarried bitches eat in the dining room for breakfast. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Yeah. And she's very condescending. Like, oh, how interesting. <laughs> anyway, she tells Daisy that she's a teacher. And then she goes to say goodbye to some other people because they all care. Right. Anyway, and then Anna tries to make Daisy feel better about being stupid, which Daisy's not having. She says, it doesn't mean it's any better than the path you chose. And I'm like, Anna, Daisy, like all of you, didn't really choose her path. Yeah. That's sort of the whole issue here. Thomas tells McGee that he knows something about Baxter, but she cuts him off and says that she already knows about her criminal record and that she doesn't understand why Thomas placed this felon in her house. Thomas is like, uh. (laughs) And... She wants to know why Thomas is only revealing this now and suggests that perhaps there is no place for him in this house because he's uh, doing all this blackmailing, which doesn't seem cool. McGee is the best. She is the best. I love her. Yeah. And she, Elizabeth McGovern is doing such a great job in this. Like, she doesn't have a ton to do. Right. But everything that she does have to do, she is nailing it. Yeah. yeah. Selfridge style. Yeah. This scene was great. Uh, Thomas goes into the stairwell and sees Baxter and says, you think you're so clever. Which I doubt. She's like, no, I've (laughs) never thought that, ever. Why do you think (laughs) I botched that burglary? (laughs) Lord Grantham is in the drawing room and asks Branson if, oh, I'm sorry, I think they're in the library, actually. Oh, yeah, right. For those of you keeping score. (laughs) Sure. Uh, He asks Branson if Miss Bunting is gone. Branson apologizes for arguing with him at dinner, but the homely liberal reminds him of who he used to be. Boo. Yeah. Lord Grantham wants to know if he wants to go back to being a decent human being, and Branson doesn't answer. Yeah. And that's the thing. The way you want to go back. Yeah. Well, and Lord Grantham's like, to uh, being a rebel and a hater. Yeah. And I'm like, haters gonna hate. <laughs> I hear that haters are going to hate. And I don't allow that in this house. <laughs> no, and Branson says, I don't hate anyone. And I'm like, you probably should. He also says, least of all you. I'm like, least of all come on yeah you probably least of all hate edith yeah uh anyway he tells lord grantham that he and the homely liberal aren't and have never been lovers and lord grantham nearly chokes on his (laughs) nightcap yeah and then lord grantham says that as sybil's father this conversation is not easy and apologizes uh for having maligned tom unfairly Mm -hmm. branson is a giant pussy and i hope the ira puts a (laughs) bullet in his head is what i wrote down (laughs) also isis isis Lord Grantham calls her to go with him to bed. Yeah, she's been hanging out by the fire because oh, yeah. she's not an idiot. She is not an idiot. Yeah. Fires are great. 
Although oh. perhaps I've spoken too soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so McGee is still trying to get Baxter to spill more details, uh, but she refuses to say anything else because she's actually dumber than Mosley. Which you have to oversleep <laughs> several days in order to be dumber than Molesley. Yeah. But she's managed it. Yeah, because well, Baxter basically won't say what happened to the jewels. Yeah. Essentially. Um, Baxter asks if she's dismissed, but Ming-Chi says that she has given her great service and she's never sacked a servant without cause. And Baxter says that she will never commit any crime ever again, which is a bold statement. Um, she says that Not she- even jaywalking? <laughs> right. Or like... Not know. even pirating a video? <laughs> Because <laughs> it's super convenient. <laughs> McGee says that she needs time to make a decision. She's making no guarantees and tells Baxter to peace out. Uh, Mary's being undressed by Anna and she says she hates the homely liberal because she makes Lord Grantham say things he doesn't mean and he hates himself for it afterwards. Prompting me uh, to ask the question, how delusional is Lady Mary? Right. Because, well, yeah, I heard that and I wrote down, that's one interpretation like on a scale of one to scientology <laughs> right yeah that's, that's not that's yeah no like hate him because i'm sorry hate her because she ruffles everybody's feathers or she's, she makes your dad angry she's rude there's plenty she's ugly yeah one is like what did he even say that he didn't mean particularly no i like, know he meant everything that he said yeah and the stuff he was saying wasn't you know by his standards particularly wrong-headed or offensive no you know? like yeah they're a pro-war house, damn it. Yeah. Carson catches Molesley and tells him that he has to fix his hair or stay below stairs. So he washes dye out in the bathtub, and his hair never really looked that bad. That was all very strange. Edith is sitting in her bed, sitting there looking at the German primer, crying about Gregson. She's also looking at a picture of Marigold. Uh, she throws the book away from the bed, puts the picture under her pillow, then starts the arduous task of crying herself to sleep. Uh, and then the book catches fire. Right. Because she just threw it towards the fire without looking. To like, make sure it hadn't gotten in the fire. Right. Like, like she, like she, was she drunk? What's going on? There's here? three other walls in that room. <laughs> you could have right. thrown that book at any one of them. Yeah. And also, like, that's that's the book that your beloved fiancé signed. Like, maybe be a little more careful with it. Nope. He ain't signing no more books, Edith. <laughs> you don't know that. <laughs> Not unless it's Mein Kampf. <laughs> I've returned. I got to talking with these Nazis, and they really make a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas is leading Jimmy Kent to Lady Anstruther's room. Uh, They see Anna and wait until she's gone, but then Gilly shows up and walks into Mary's room. Scandal! Yup. Thomas says that he guesses she's not so (laughs) ladylike. Which, like, we all knew that in the first season. Right. That was established early on. Anyway. Like, so how did that how did that rumor escape your notice Thomas? Yeah, I don't I don't think I thought he did I feel like he did know about it at some point. Yeah, that was that was one of his early schemes cuz he had like seen them carrying the body or something. I'm pretty sure he knew about no, it. No, I think Daisy saw them. Oh yeah. And then she told Thomas or something. He was I think somehow involved in however Lady Flincher found out about it. Right. Anyway. Well, anyway. Sorry for vaguely recapping something that we've already recapped. Yeah, on for more on this, uh, find that episode. <laughs> yeah, we can't tell you which one it is. Shh. <laughs> so 
Jimmy Kent asks if Thomas thinks that he's mad. Uh, Thomas says no, he's just standard levels of horny. Um, <laughs> Jimmy Kent says that maybe Lady Anstruther just wants to talk. Thomas is like, bitch, please. Yeah. Thomas offers to keep watch and uh, to, to make sure he gets through the hallway unobserved and then advises him to leave a room before three. And look, Thomas, I know where you're going because I've been there myself. <laughs> Jimmy Kent is not going to fuck you because you facilitated him fucking somebody else. That is tr- That is not how fucking works. It's just being... It's p- not the transitive axiom. It's just being a pal. <laughs> Mary, in a fabulous house coat, is telling Gilly that he shouldn't be in her room. Right. You'll be killed. Yeah. <laughs> I have a vagina of death, you see. <laughs> He says he's in there because she's in love with him. And I'm like, uh, I think you have that the wrong way around. Yeah. But she's like, don't tell me how to think. And then Gilly says that they should take a week-long trip and bang each other and see how that works out. No. Uh, and now Mary does say in this scene that she wants to be as happy with her second husband as she was with her first. Right. So maybe she wasn't talking smack about Matthew's dick. Maybe not. We just prefer to think that. Anyway, this just whole thing makes me want to return to a simpler time when just plain earnestness could get you laid and you'd have to be clever yeah no because gilly has oh earnestness on lock yeah he's just pleading with his eyes yeah uh, anyway mary says fine she'll do it as long as no one ever finds out which has worked out great for you in the past <laughs> right that's a promise that can easily be made absolutely Thomas smells smoke and goes into Edith's room, which is engulfed in flames. So Edith, among her many other talents, surprisingly sound sleeper, <laughs> it would seem. <laughs> so he starts shouting out that there's a fire. Mary hears him and says, George. She's probably just using George as an excuse to get out of Gilly's presence. Yeah. I don't think she actually cares about her son. <laughs> that seems probable. Yeah. Yeah. Branson has already grabbed Sibby and George, and then Lord Grantham gets him to help find the sand. Like, he says, Tom, you know where the sand buckets are. I'm like, shouldn't everybody know where the sand buckets are? Yeah, you should distribute that knowledge widely. (laughs) you're not home. Yeah. Also, George looked quite cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's probably because he was out of his sailor suit. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Actually, Lord Grantham does very well here. He takes charge. He He oversees sort of getting everybody out. Uh, He tells Thomas he's going to go knock on all the doors and get everybody out. And then Thomas is like, oh, let me do that. (laughs) But it's too late. Yeah. Because he's already come upon Lady Anstruther and Jimmy Kent in a different version of In Flagrante. Uh, And he's like, there's a fire. And it is the funniest thing that happens in this episode. Yeah, it was was really great. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. So the cat's out of the bag there, Jimmy (laughs) Kent-wise. Uh, so hubbub, the servants are bustling around. Tom's wrestling with the fire hose while Lord Grantham tries to help him. Uh, and they, they do get it running, get the hose started, and then the village fire brigade arrives and takes over. Which uh, is good, because they were not doing well. No, no. And Lord Grantham thanks Branson for, you know, helping save everybody. People are carrying paintings and other stuff out of the house, and uh, Edith says she feels stupid. Let's, uh, she should. Yeah. But Majid says, don't worry about that right now. Right. Which, you'll note, it's not like Majid says, no, you're not. Yeah. She says, this isn't the time. Yeah. Uh, we'll all make fun of you later. Lady Anne Strether informs Lord Grantham she's going to sneak away before breakfast <laughs> as she has a rather long way to go. And then uh, McGee compliments Thomas on saving Edith and foolishly says all is forgiven. And I'm like, you know, one good deed unrelated to the bad deed doesn't mean the bad deed. Like, the this problem is- was not that you he was threatening 
your children. <laughs> right. The problem was that he was making life unbearable for your servants. True enough. That said, he did just save the life of her daughter. That would, would make it difficult to fire somebody. That's a really good point. Yeah. And it would be ironic to fire someone right <laughs> after a fire. That's true. The jokes... Um, and also, I mean, what I appreciate about this, too, is that it's not like Thomas was doing this for any other reason than just basic humanity. Yeah, so I guess his heart grew two sizes that day or something. <laughs> oh, maybe one and a half. Oh, and, like, Bates and Anna show up because Bates gets all worked up about stuff. It's a weird little interlude. I, it like, is. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a reference to, like, him finding out about Mr. Green or whatever, but, like, nobody yeah, cares. Nobody Moving did. on. Yeah, it was dumb. Fuck you, Neem and Baron Fellows, for <laughs> making us hate Anna. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham tells Carson that it might be a good idea for Jimmy Kent to move on, but to give him a good reference because we don't want anybody talking about it, uh, but that he had uh, he has ideas rather above his station here, and Carson is like, uh-huh. Yeah, he definitely had figured that out. Yeah. So uh, the fire brigade has determined there's no damage beyond Edith's room. They yes. can all go back inside. And then Mrs. Hughes asks if Edith can sleep in Lord Grantham's dressing room since the bed in there is already made up since they're all continuing to live under the charade uh, <laughs> that Lord Grantham uses his dressing room. Right. And then Edith uh, sees Mr. Drew, the pig who, man. Who is the head of the fire brigade. Uh, you know, it's Chekhov's fire brigade chief. <laughs> and asks if he had any ideas uh, because this is definitely the time for oh, you to yeah. just, do it. Half the village right. is here. When everybody who you possibly want them to not know about this is, is gathered around. Uh, anyway, he says yes. She is going to be Marigold's weird rich benefactor. So great. Like, have you read Great Expectations? Because this is not going to go well. <laughs> or have you seen the South Park version? That one's real fun. <laughs> and that's the end of the first episode. Yes. Uh, so there's some interesting stuff going on here. There particularly is. Murder Bell. That's right. Very interested in that. Uh, yeah. With, well, Shackleton involved. Uh-huh. So it's like Shack, Shack Somert. It's a triangle is what I'm getting at. I don't at. like that at all. Yeah, I don't think you can make a portmanteau out of free names. Well, I was going to give it a try and it well, failed. Well, yeah. So yeah. never try. Well, all those two of them end in ton, so that throws the whole thing off. <laughs> well, shouldn't it be uh, is a Myrtleton? <laughs> See, that's fun. I'm better at portmanteaus than you, <laughs> Yeah, I never said otherwise. At any rate, is now time for <gasps> the Abbey Awards. Hooray! Leading things off, Tom? Uh, we start off with the award for best evasion. Uh, not a ton this episode, but it goes to Baxter, who uh, rather artlessly evaded answering what the heck it was that was going on with this robbery, because otherwise this plot line would be over now, and they have no idea what else to do with her. Uh, also, she evaded seeming like an actual person. <laughs> right. Next, we have worst overbite. We're giving it to Kitty. Yes. Even though her friend might have actually had the worst overbite, we just really liked Kitty. Yeah, we liked Kitty better. But we they liked were both... how cheerful she was about being stupid. Uh, yes. <laughs> she's like, I know I'm stupid, but I'm rich. <laughs> well, she was like, hey, yeah, no, I'm stupid, but I'm rich. Like, she shouldn't be allowed <laughs> to say that to my face. Yes. They were both strong candidates, but Kitty wins that one. Uh, then we get worst decision, which is Edith in a landslide. Uh, primarily for setting the house on fire. Yeah. But also... Nobody else in this episode set the house on fire. <laughs> right. 
but also for literally every other decision she makes in this episode. Oh my god. They're all terrible. Hanging out too long with Marigold, yeah. uh, making the pig, Mrs. Pigman all suspicious, mm-hmm. continually trying to talk to, uh, Pigman. Being, f- being a bummer everywhere. Yeah. It just, ugh. Yeah. Not looking good no. for Edith this season. Gibson Girl goes to perennial favorite Lady Mary. That's right. Uh, who's got several Cracker Jack outfits. Uh, the sort of, uh, black and white number with the, uh, choker scarf right thing that she wears to the anniversary party mm-hmm. before that she's got a nice uh black dress with a lot of embellishments yeah and then man that house coat yeah like it should look really frumpy well because everybody else's do like yeah. we see a bunch of them in this episode but, but hers, hers is pretty sassy yeah we're uh we're fans she well she knows she sometimes entertains gentlemen callers in her room that's so true she's <laughs> like i gotta invest in this gotta one make sure yeah uh, that brings us to the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. the Backy. Uh, and this one goes to the Fire Brigade, which, which which you didn't mention at the time. But they have, like, I just imagine their committee meeting where they're like, you know, these helmets, they're effective, but they aren't nearly silly enough. <laughs> what if they were gold and looked kind of Roman and had these weird, like, coin chains coming down? They're like, brilliant! Motion passed. <laughs> Lord Grant was like, why didn't they have me on the committee to decide what kind of silly hat the fire brigade was wearing? <laughs> Next, well, we, have... we were expecting you to pay for them, my lord. <laughs> oh, very well. Next, we have cutest baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, the babies, not in this episode very much. True. And uh, fuck that sailor suit. <laughs> and fuck Donk. <laughs> so we're giving it to, uh, if you look in the school prizes scene over oh. to the very left-hand side. Right. There's a very adorable, enthusiastic young boy baby in a hat. Yeah. Uh, a hat very similar to the one that I wore at that age in a production of Oliver. So it may be sentimentality on our part, but yes. we've given it to that baby. Yeah. I mean, there was, I mean, there was an f- unusual number of candidates, really. There was the piglets, you know, all, and all them, but this baby wins. And that finally brings us to the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths, which would rate Maggie Smith on a scale of one Maggie Smith to five Maggie Smiths, as no other scale can do her justice. Exactly. In case you're just joining us. Uh, also, no one else can be given Maggie Smiths. Right. Except that one time when Anna got raped. Because <laughs> we felt soups bad. Right. So she got a pity smith. <laughs> uh, but in this week, uh, she has achieved four Maggie Smiths. Uh, a pretty good performance. Yeah, uh, a lot of Bon Mots. I feel like had she been there for the fire, she would have cranked it up to uh, an uneven five. That's honestly. very possible. She yeah. would have definitely had some things about smoke Yeah, uh, and fire. Sure. And Edith. <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, lots of fun. And she definitely seems to uh, have some things going on this season, yeah, which is nice. Yeah, which we, uh, we always like the dynamic between her and Isabel. Yeah. That's very good for her Maggie Smith's rating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically speaking, That's those right. two play off of each other in a way that is favorable to Maggie Smith. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I think that does it for uh, Series 5, Episode 1. It Join does. us again next week for Series 5, Episode 2, as follows logically. <laughs> and until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. Luncheon out. <laughs>